I always come back to this example that John Strohmeyer gave on his Five Star Council podcast, where he talked about a law firm being like a tripod or a stool with three legs. You've got one giant solid leg, which is you as the owner. Your next leg has some pretty serious parts of it. That's your employees. And then you've got that third leg, and that's made up of a bunch of toothpicks. Those are your clients. And he talks about how you have to make sure the stool balances by treating each of those legs the right way, understanding their component here. And so I wanted to dive deeper on this with some awesome experts. We've got two of them for you. Today, we're going to talk about people-first, employee-owned law firms. So we're going to talk about that tripod leg of the stool made up of employees and why that could be the most important one to balance when it comes to this. Because really, your clients will come and go, but your employees are going to be there for the long haul dealing with all those. So I am super honored to have not one, but two amazing guests today to talk about this on our Exhibit A show. So Yev, we're going to have you up first, give a little bit of your bio, and then we'll jump over to you, Jason. Yeah, <clears throat> thanks for having us. Uh, my name is Yav Muchnik. Um, I am a corporate and securities attorney by trade. Um, and I am of counsel to Jason Weiner PC and have been practicing law for about 13, almost 14 years. I'm based awesome. out of Denver, Colorado. Awesome. The last time Yev and I talked, she was literally like biking down a mountain with while on Zoom with us. It was one of the coolest experiences <laughs> of my life. I can't even imagine what it was like for her. So it was really an awesome chat. And Jason, tell everybody a little bit about you. Good to be with you both. Um, my name is Jason. I'm based in Boulder, Colorado. I'm a transplant from New York. Um, I am a, what I would kind of put in the overall wrapper of a new economies lawyers uh, or sustainable economies lawyer, uh, focus on cooperatives, employee ownership, broad-based ownership, and alternative finance. I do my fair share of uh, corporate M&A, general counsel, securities and fund work as well. And um, I kind of came to this from an in-house experience at a totally unconventional company. I moved from big law in New York to go in-house as a co-owner and general counsel of Namaste Solar, which was a, an employee-owned solar company uh, just after the Great Recession um, when the uh, kind of green jobs boom first hit. Um, and I've been running a, this boutique law firm now for going on eight years. I've been a lawyer for 16 years. And, um, and we call ourselves a law firm and business consultancy. We blend the expertise and, and knowledge of uh, business acumen with uh, legal solutions uh, as much as the deep, rigorous legal work to uh, draft, file, do all this stuff that, um, you know, white shoe transactional law firms do. Awesome. And I, I feel so boring for calling myself just a corporate and securities attorney there. So I, I borrow some of the things that Jason has just uh, used to describe himself as well. Yeah, absolutely. We'll dive a little bit more deep, uh, a little bit deeper into that. But before that, I want to talk about our last episode uh, that aired on Monday. We had Tracy Matney on. Tracy talked about the simple secrets to sharpen your sales mindset. So for those of you or those of us who struggle with sales, which is probably all of us, a uh, very interesting deep dive that Tracy gave us on some things to hype yourself up, how to get in the right mindset, as well as a couple cool stories and some tactics on how to better sell your law firm, sell your services, and really sell the truth as an attorney to a client, a judge, a jury, et cetera. So pretty interesting episode, but uh, I want to circle back with Jason and Yev right now. So when it comes to this concept of, you know, putting people first and being employee-owned law firms and employee-owned businesses, is there like that rock bottom horror story that either of you have had that it was like, oh my God, this is what we don't want it to look like? 
Um, well, in fairness, we're not yet legally employee owned. Um, we've been on, you know, uh, in terms of an iceberg analogy, we've been kind of climbing the iceberg, doing the the deeper design and exploration work together. Uh, but we've been we've been self managed for three to four years, and by that I mean that every person in our law firm, including our non attorneys, have enough agency and discretion and empowerment to make just about any decision I can and I do. And I reserve and actually refrain from most decisions uh, to create space for our entire team to exercise that autonomy. And they do. Um, in fact, I had an associate uh, on a call with a, a client prospect who said, you know, do I need to talk to Jason about any, any of the logistics or details? And she was proud to say, there's nothing that I can't say that Jason can. Uh, and she told me that, and it was empowering for her, and it made me really proud. Um, horror stories generally arise from people who have severe misunderstandings of what employee ownership is about, and they think that if they kind of tokenize ownership and you know make a legal uh, change to their structure, all of a sudden it's going to open up a panacea. And the reality is, you know, like therapy and like the legal practice, it takes work. It takes daily work to nurture, build, and reaffirm um, what ownership is and how people exercise power in an organization, agency in an organization. So the horror stories actually come from poorly trained, misunderstood forms of ownership where you know people just kind of go rogue. And with little training, bad communication, um, this wasn't a law firm, but I've seen examples where uh, a modicum of of power held by employees lead has led to an ouster and coup of management, and it's landed in litigation and just a complete disaster. Well, so and I guess that's that's a great point. So from that standpoint of other businesses, like what are the what are common the common issues that we see when we don't give our employees enough of that agency? You know, yeah, do you have experiences working with some of these businesses? I mean, you're seeing high turnover here. You're seeing less buy-in. Like, what's the what's the downside of not really putting our employees first? Yeah, I mean, just those things that you've just mentioned is that you really, you get to burn out a lot quicker. Um, and just disengagement. So, uh, and that, that affects kind of culture, morale, um, client work, everything across the board. Um, and, you know, just to kind of add to what Jason just said, I think kind of one of the rock bottom issues or kind of issues in structuring a smaller firm that is either employee owned or not, but it's trying to, I think size matters, right, on, on, at this level. And, um, you know, a lot of firms try to build themselves out as, as a small firm that has big law capabilities or is that big is, is kind of trying to be big law on a small level sense. And, and that doesn't always work out. I think that there's a reason why clients don't, you know, have fallen out of the big law model or just don't find it advantageous for what they're doing. And so I don't think that they're trying to replicate that maybe absolutely as far as quality, but, um, but I think that kind of not knowing or kind of being, um, in, not genuine as to as to what you're really trying to put out there as a firm it, itself probably carries over to your employees and, and other members and, and stakeholders. And we should contextualize. I mean, we're living through the great resignation or the great sideline, and we've been in active hiring mode and talent acquisition 
is the number one pain point that we face. Uh, retention then becomes hypercritical. And, uh, you know, there's stories of what big law is having to do to attract and retain their talent. And, you know, great for associates, but what's it doing to the market when we're looking at $200,000 signing bonuses, you know, probably north of 200K for tier one big law starting salaries. Uh, you know, that has to trend, that's trickling somewhere. And of course, you know, we're seeing a hyper specialization and consolidation of the clients that can afford those rates in those cities. So there's a further kind of acceleration of tier one city big law firms away from mid-sized firms and away from tier two cities. So we've been able to just like keep a slow burn, keep our clients happy, keep our team engaged and happy. And the dividends that pays intangibly and financially are immeasurably huge. And, you know, talent now has always been the number one priority, should always be the number one priority. It's now acutely a priority for everybody because people are either sitting out or they're paralyzed from making any changes. And so, you know, it's impossible for anybody to hire. So, so I want to I I flip, flip this a little bit. Look, you all are talking to business owners, other lawyers. I'm talking to lawyers all the time. We always hear that the same common issue. You know, I'm working too much. I'm doing too much. Everything falls on me, et cetera. So to that owner, trying to take that first step towards flipping this on its head, towards empowering all the employees, towards getting this set up, like what's that step one? Can I just disabuse that, that stereotype? I mean, it's probably largely true. I track every minute of my workday. And I've got two small kids, so I've got like, you know, impenetrable boundaries on either side of my life because it's, you know, kids don't really care what you do or how much you're billing. Um, I rarely track, I rarely bill more than 40. I rarely work more than 40 hours a week. Rarely. Um, I'm between 35 and 40 total working hours per week. Yeah, I'm thinking about stuff, but you know, I'm not in front of a computer and I'm taking probably north of 30 paid vacation days a year. And this was part of my goal when I launched the firm. I wanted the firm to be a manifestation of my life and values. And I've made it a point for everyone on the team to live those same values, take paid time off, unlimited paid time off for associates. We don't have billable uh, targets. Um, but everybody's, you know, more or less like, you know, if I had to average it, I'd say that we're probably between a thousand and twelve hundred meaningful billable hours a year, which sounds unsustainable. And, uh, you know, maybe at a certain, you know, myopic level it is. But the key to that is balance and resilience within our organization. So we have a load, our team, because of the way it's structured and systems are built, we have load balancing mechanisms so that we are always able to reabsorb pain points in other people or their vacation or their client load. There's sufficient overlap that we can do all of this. And we're turning back work product at a higher level, higher quality and faster than just about any of our competitors. And it's not perfect at all. It's hard work, but we do that, I think, by focusing on some really core principles of balance, resilience, communication, and it pays off. That's number one. Number one is like doing the hard stuff first, build on top of a strong foundation. Yeah, you agree? 
Yeah, I mean, and I, I would just add that, you know, I, <laughs> in building out my own firm, so I um, still have a, a boutique law firm called Launch Legal, um, while I act as a counsel to Jason's firm. Um, but it was something that I fought against for, for a very long time, which was systems <laughs> and getting the proper systems in place. Um, and that's the foundation. But um, you quickly realize that you outgrow you know, out of your own head and out of your own kind of scribble papers and you have to, in order to be efficient, in order to to provide the value that you can really provide on the level that you can provide, not just kind of logging, you know, billable minutes and hours and seconds. Um, it's that you, you have kind of so much to offer as a thought leader, um, as somebody running a firm or a practice or specializing in something. So it's finding space through systems <laughs> and through your team um, to kind of identify your your weaknesses and, and creating space for that. And so I see, you know, so Jason talked about foundation, you're talking about systems. I hear him, I see him nodding his head during this time. So I know we're, we're all talking about systems being part of that foundation and whatnot. Are there some specific systems that you found to be like the utmost importance? Like these are the ones we have to get down first. We'll go to Yev first, then we'll go to Jason. Um, I mean, I think it's just creating a system that works for you above all, right? And that works for everybody in your organization um, and being able to stick to them because systems that live on their own are, there's so much legal tech out there. There's so, so much now, like more than we can absorb or handle or keep up with, but it's just finding, even if it's simple, um, you know, mechanisms like, like Trello or using Teams, you know, and, and having everybody on board with those, then, then that kind of creates those efficiencies. So you're not, you know, and I, I'm, I'm saying this because I'm so guilty of it and I, I'm constantly trying to over, um, overcompensate for, for my weaknesses. But I, I, I truly believe as ugly of a word as that is, I think systems um, through legal tech, legal tech something that everybody can get combined is really important. Yeah, I love, yeah, I love, I love the, the meta, meta system of building systems, systems as the system. Uh, Jason? So we're, we're firm believers of um, kind of experimentation and, you know, agile development. So system design can sound bureaucratic and slow and clunky, but for us, it's entirely been a process of creation and co-design and function. So I've been saying this actually all week with purpose, every system that we use, every process we have, has been created with intention, purpose, and specific consent of everyone using it. And I think those are three necessary ingredients because without those, as you have said, it's bureaucracy. We don't have a single system that we say, we just do it because the only one we have like that is probably our trust accounting. Everything else has been created with a specific purpose in mind. And we often forget what that purpose is, or we forget the collective value or the big picture benefit. But I think the necessary systems are asynchronous and multimodal communication, Teams, Zoom, anything that makes it easy to communicate in a virtual environment. We use these with our team and our clients. And we were remote first back in 2014. So this has been second nature through the pandemic. Uh, but the ability for associates not to have that hurdle of, do I go down the hall and, open, and knock on the partner's door? They just call me up. And it's not a phone call. It's not disturbing me. It's right in my workflow. Um, that's also, you know, Teams is great because video and audio and, and chat is baked into the workflow. We've channelized a lot of our 
kind of gen general conversations. So we use that for communications. That's our communications environment. We use Trello specifically for client um, work. And so we have our entire, and this was just something I love doing. I mapped our entire, um, I mapped our entire workflow into Trello and we've been adapting it, but we've automated parts of it. And sure, Clio and other legal tech options probably do this at a more robust level, but ours is lean and functional and we have total control over it so we can mold it and adapt it and change it. But we've automated parts of it, like parts of our intake process and our conflicts check, it's all automated now. And we're able to synthesize that with our billing software. So it's taken time, but that time has also given us power because we're not reliant on you know, a CRM developer every time we need a minor tweak. We can do this all in-house ourselves. The other is we got to a point where it no longer made sense for every lawyer to be a part-time admin or part-time ops person. So we uh, essentially, we um, promoted our paralegal to being an ops director. And so she's wearing hats of strategy and ops and program and system design all day, every day, and is there to streamline the work of the attorneys, not for the purpose of generating more billable hours, but to reduce the trudgery of what they do to allow them to do what they love most and do best. And I focus on that because that may be billable time, that may be blogging, that may be speaking, whatever it is, it builds a whole professional that makes them happy. They stay longer and we're able to decommoditize our work. We're able to, you know, kind of live into the relationships we've built so that it's not just purely transactional. So it's fulfilling on top of everything. Yeah. And I hear you both using we a lot. And obviously at some point we're talking about having employees, we're talking about growing this team, we're talking about growing the organization, putting them first. Before we get into like the actual hiring, so we're building this foundation, we're getting these systems in place. Is there anything else that we need to make sure we have dialed in before we start hiring these employees who we're going to then put first and empower to run this firm? Culture. I mean, culture is the glue. So like, you know, these tools of communication and systems and all this other stuff, it, it doesn't mean much unless you've got a culture that reinforces these values I've been talking about. Values can... You know, there it, it's like integrity. You work a lifetime to build it, but you can lose it instantly. And culture is that way too. It doesn't take much to toxify, you know, a, a healthy culture. And we nurture that, and the systems are part of it. So too are system refinements. Like yesterday, we did a quarterly retro with the whole team, and this is a place for us to debrief. How are things going? Three quarters of the way in, we started actually talking about systems and the need for like, okay, we need to realign on these. We need to do better training and we need to revisit whether the system is still working for us or not. And so that that was a cultural conversation that actually reinforced system design. And so they're mutually reinforcing and that helps to build all the things that very expensive HR departments are otherwise there policing and enforcing. Culture is the antidote to enforcement and policing. And so we spend a lot of time, energy, and resources building that um, because it's that's the insurance policy. That's the backstop. That's the meaning that brings virtual teams together and gets them to do their highest and best work. And so, yeah, when it comes to culture, what what are you doing to build that culture? What are you looking for in a great culture? Like, walk me through some of your mindset there. Yeah, I mean, and I'll just say that, you know, what drew me to working with Jason and his existing team um, about a year and a half ago was was just this this 
prospect of culture, the culture that they had developed. It was, um, you know, the, the feeling that we could be creative lawyers, that we were really pushing the envelope on a lot of um, new issues that we we're and, and working at it kind of from different perspectives. So there was no, it, it, there was like a, there was a sandbox environment essentially for, for new matters, for, you know, creating kind of turning on its head these <laughs> existing practice areas um, that we that we've come to know, and that's that was exciting for me because that's what I did in my firm, and it was somebody that was very much aligned, you know, not just from the mission-focused companies that we work with or the social impact, but it was just this like broader category of like we're here to support you, we're here to provide these tools, and we're also really interested in, in building this together. So I think that that element has or that thread has sort of been consistent and new um, employees that have come on have have felt that kind of um, communication to them and that that openness of, of participation like oh here's an idea yeah we're, we're fully behind you let's do this let's try it out so kind of that sandbox of being able to explore different kinds of um, work practice areas policies you know all of it is supported um, in our culture so, and I want to go deeper into that because, I mean, I think there's such a, a strong point to make there. So we've got this foundation, we've got these systems, you know, we've started this process, we've got this culture, now we're bringing people in. When it comes time to do that hiring, I obviously have to believe you all are attracting a specific kind of person who wants what you're talking about. But from your perspective on the hiring side of it, are you looking for specific traits or skills or attitudes in these new employees to fit this culture, to fit these systems? You know, can you walk me through that process a little bit? I'll, ju I'll just quickly touch on it and then I'll let sure. you it. But I mean, we even have, you know, in our systems and Trello. So when we are recruiting or looking at a potential candidate, you know, values is really one of the things that everybody comments on. Is there a values alignment and fit? So that's just as much as, you know, experience or, you know, anything else. But values is really at the top of the list. So, and before we jump over to Jason on that, when you say values, like, are there specific, do you have these written out? Are there core values? Like when you say values, is it just, is it a feeling or are there specific values you are looking for? Yeah. I mean, we don't, we definitely don't have it written out. I think it's just, it's an innate kind of gotcha. cultural fit that we just talked about that it's there already. And it's one of those like je ne sais quoi, it exists, but I don't know exactly how to, how to describe it, but it's there. Or it's not there. And, and so we so we could be all on the same page and able to to discern whether that candidate is as well. I would I would refine that a little bit. We've used the the firm's core values as a guidepost, and those have been enduring. Surprising to me, for eight years, we've had several chapters of um, team members come through and you know reaffirm those values and actually discourage me from updating them. I wrote them in two thousand fourteen and. You know, eight years later, they're still enduring. Values are, I want to just admit something, they're double-edged swords. Values are historically used as a way to kind of hire and retain people who look like us. And in a law firm, that's often white dudes. And I want to be clear that we're using values to break that mold intentionally. And so we use values to hire for people who neither look, sound, uh, or come from backgrounds like me in particular. Um, and as a result, we have a disproportionately 
uh, diverse team. Um, all but two of us are women. Um, I think higher than average, we are composed of uh, women of color, um, you know, LGBTQIA, and we're hiring for those dimensions as much as for disposition and temperament. And uh, that sounds a little maybe too clinical, but, you know, we're hiring, I think, for attributes of entrepreneurship, creativity. Uh, so somewhat atypical legal traits, um, because we know our practice areas, you know, on the one hand, a lot of it is a lot of the transactional stuff is pretty traditional. On the other hand, it's incredibly novel. We don't expect really anybody coming in to have co-op experience or what we call alternative finance experience. Like we have been making up a lot of this stuff with no playbook. So we'll train that stuff, but we want to hire people who are intrepid and fearless. And, you know, one of the harder things is for young attorneys to live into a sense of autonomy. Many people are like, tell me the expectations, tell me the deadline, tell me the rules, and I will hit the mark. And we tell people you have agency. You know, we're, I'm not, I, I, I disavow the idea that I'm a boss. I don't tell people what to do. I give them guidance and empower them to own their task, own the project and come to me for support. You know, some call it servant leadership. So it's important we're hiring for people who can thrive in that environment. Not everybody can. Um, and we need people who are looking at building from a, either no mold or different mold and are able to see connections between paradigms they've worked on in the past. And that's what we've done. We've all shape-shifted from a legal tradition to do very novel legal work. And that requires you to break paradigms, think differently, but use your legal training, your analytical skills. And we're looking for that. It's, I'll be honest, it's very hard to recruit right now. Even when we know what we want, there are people, I think, I, I think most people are, are either sitting on the sidelines or somewhat paralyzed sitting in their chair where they are because the future is uncertain. That is hard for us because our business thrives on uncertainty. You know, no two days are alike. And while we, you know, we don't know where the next, I don't know what I'm going to be working on tomorrow in most cases. And there could be any number of variety. You know, we have for a team of 10 people, we're serving over 160 clients a year, which is astronomically high volume, high variety work. I'll touch 20 to 30 different client matters per month. That's a lot to keep track of. That's a lot of, you know, ownership and self-responsibility. So these are things we've got to hire for and communicate in, a, in an effective way uh, to differentiate ourselves from the crowd uh, that's, you know, maybe talking similarly, but with a very different culture beneath it and behind it. So as we get towards the end here, I mean, look, there's a ton that we've talked about. There's a ton more that we can, uh, but we are on limited time. So speaking to that law firm owner who is trying to make the switch into building a practice that thrives like you all are talking about, building a life that is exciting like you all are talking about, building lives for employees that are as fulfilling as you all are allowing your, or, or I shouldn't say allowing, empowering your employees to experience as well. What else do you want to make sure that we get into their mind? And no, we will have our final takeaway. So, but just want to make sure we get the opportunity to cover any other big points that I'm going to miss here. 
think long term, you know, the, the time it takes to do some of these things is can, can seem, you know, it doesn't have an immediate payoff and there's risk. You can invest a lot in somebody and they leave. Um, but that old cliche that you'd rather train people well to leave than under train them and they stay really, I've seen it. I've felt it. I've lived it. And I would rather, I would do it all over again to over invest and over invest in people at the risk of them leaving. And it's a long-term attitude and it's yielded enormous, irreplaceable benefits in my own life. Time has new meaning and risk has new meaning and spaciousness has meaning in my life. These are not things that I'll think a lot of firm owners are really thinking about. And there's a built-in quote unquote succession plan. I'm not going to begin implementing that for a long time, but it's there. There's a backup plan should that ever be necessary. Yev? Yeah, I think that um, I would add that <clears throat> transparency. I mean, there's no such thing as um, too much transparency. I think that having everybody feel like they understand the numbers, they understand the issues. I mean, whether it's kind of increases in operating costs tied to malpractice, you know, whatever it is, I think that that transparency really empowers people and makes them feel like they have a different kind of stake in the organization as well. Um, and they're, you know, they're allowed to ask questions. They're allowed to inquire and propose different things as well. And um, yeah, so transparency, there's no, no, no such thing as too much transparency. Awesome. All right. So we're going to get back to Yev and Jason for that final nugget of wisdom. But before that, I want to talk about our next episode. That episode is going to air on Monday. So November 15th at 1.30 Eastern time. So an hour later than you watch the show, Monday at 1.30 Eastern time, we've got Matt Deutschman on. Matt's coming to us from Double Take Promotions, a promotional product place, which I actually, I guess you can't see me while running this, but I have one of their things here. It's a phone stand. It's pretty cool. He's going to talk to us about how you grow your law firm through promotional items, such as the awesome phone stand that sits on my desk. And we're going to have a super secret special announcement about a way that you can incorporate uh, some of Matt's stuff into what we're already doing through the different CRMs. So you'll have to come back Monday at 1.30 to hear more about that. But Yev and Jason, I can't let you go without that final nugget of wisdom, that biggest takeaway. So for our listeners and our watchers to become the exhibit A of a successful attorney like the two of you, what would be the number one biggest piece of advice if they remember nothing from the last 40 minutes of the show that you want to make sure they hear? It can be something you've talked about, something totally different, but that biggest one, number one takeaway that they will remember, what does it need to be? Well, I'll give your guests a, a special treat and give you two. One is don't hide your values. Put them front and center. Give yourself permission to behave, live, and act according to a public set of values. It's liberating. Number two, start somewhere. There's no perfection here. Everything is messy. It all takes time. Try things. Start somewhere. See what works. Keep doing what works. Stop doing what doesn't work. But if you act with intention and you start, you're already on the path. I love it. That was awesome. Yev? One up, Jason. <laughs> I couldn't want ever one up, Jason. Um, my recommendation, and this is slightly bad um, 
analogy, but, <laughs> but be like a snake. I mean, being a lawyer is not a static thing. You can, you know, you can shed layers, you can reinvent yourself, you can recreate your environment. I mean, there's, there's so much that you can do. But I think when I started practicing as a first year law associate at a, at a big law firm, I just, I saw one trajectory. I only saw one pathway. I didn't exist sort of, I didn't re realize that all of these opportunities um, and variations existed in the world. So just be open to that and talk to people and talk to us, you know, whatever it is, you know, reach out. Um, but most people you'll find are willing to talk to you. So be like a snake. I love that. So we're not, we're not saying to uh, open your clients up to original sin, but the skin shedding and the multiple options. No, no, I, I, I get your, I get your analogy. That is fantastic. Cause I do think we, um, I do think what you said is so true. Like we have this concept from our ivory tower legal education of this tunnel and therefore the blinders on along everything else. So thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And hopefully uh, Jason and Yev will join us in our solutions for lawyers, Facebook group. For everybody listening and watching, go ahead and jump on over there. It's our free group to continue a lot of these conversations. You'll get some clips of these episodes as well as some uh, unique one-off webinars and whatnot along those lines. So thank you, everybody, for listening and watching. See you all on Monday when Matt Deutschman will be on talking about how to use promotional products to grow your firm. Have a great day, everybody.